Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Three former Twitter executives are testifying before Congress over the company's alleged censorship of Hunter Biden's laptop story. The latest on the massive earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, more than 11,000 deaths have been confirmed. Rescue efforts are continuing. President Biden's State of the Union address comes as polls show a majority of Americans say he hasn't done much. We bring you analysis on Biden's brief mention of immigration and efforts to stabilize the Southeast Pacific. Texas is suing the Biden administration. The Lone Star State says federal guidance forces pharmacies to dispense abortion-inducing drugs. Online censorship and Twitter. Elon Musk named a certain U.S. agency as the worst offender in alleged government censorship. Relief efforts entered the third day after two massive earthquakes struck southern Turkey and neighboring Syria. The death toll is now confirmed at more than 11,000. In Turkey, the quakes claimed over 8,500 lives so far and knocked down some 6,400 buildings. Another 50,000 people were injured. The initial tremor was the most destructive the country has seen in decades. Hospitals, airports, and roads all suffered severe damage. Residents have complained of insufficient resources and slow emergency response. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan made his first visit to the affected areas today. He admitted there were some problems with the government's early response. All state institutions are working at the moment. On the first day, we experienced some issues, but then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. Erdogan said the government aims to build housing within one year for the homeless in the 10 affected provinces. He advised residents to listen only to the authorities' communications and ignore what he called provocateurs. According to Turkish authorities, more than 13 million people have been impacted by the earthquakes. While Turkey and Syria are reeling from the devastating earthquakes, a researcher's tweet from a few days ago has gone viral. It seems to have accurately predicted the disaster. A Dutch researcher named Frank Hugerbeets wrote on Twitter that sooner or later there will be a magnitude 7.5 earthquake in this region. He attached a picture showing the area where the quake might occur. That was on February 3rd, three days before two massive earthquakes hit southern Turkey and northern Syria. Critics point out that he often posts about earthquake regions. The prediction timing was vague, and his reasoning is not based on common scientific theories. Three former Twitter executives are on Capitol Hill today to discuss the handling of Hunter Biden's laptop story. Lawmakers from the House Oversight Committee are investigating why Twitter blocked users from sharing that New York Post story. That happened in the closing weeks of the 2020 presidential election. Committee Chairman James Comer believes the government may have been involved in the decision. The FBI and multiple federal officials have denied those allegations. Twitter executives have previously said they were suspicious of anything that looked like foreign influence and were primed to act. Comer said Tuesday, if the Treasury Department doesn't grant the panel access to Hunter Biden's financial documents, then they might subpoena them. We shouldn't have to subpoena the banks for this information. This information prior to Joe Biden becoming president was readily available to the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He is blocking me from getting information that every one of my predecessors, Republican and Democrat, had access to under President Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush. 
House Republicans want to investigate financial transactions made by the president's brother James and son Hunter to check for potential influence peddling or attempts to influence President Biden's politics through business deals. Twitter owner Elon Musk named a certain agency as the worst offender in government censorship. The agency says it aims to combat disinformation. According to Musk, it's a threat to U.S. democracy. Twitter CEO Elon Musk has pointed to a little-known government agency as the worst offender in terms of government censorship. He says the agency flagged Twitter accounts for suppression based on dubious criteria, like promoting the lab leak theory of COVID-19 origins. This week, he posted the worst offender in U.S. government censorship and media manipulation is an obscure agency called GEC. He also said they are a threat to our democracy. The GEC is the Global Engagement Center. It was founded in 2011. The agency was originally established as the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications within the Department of State. On its homepage, the GEC states its vision is, quote, to be a data-driven body leading U.S. interagency efforts in proactively addressing foreign adversaries' attempts to undermine U.S. interests using disinformation and propaganda. In this week's tweets, Musk referred to a certain installment of the Twitter files released earlier this year, published by journalist Matt Taibbi. It alleges the GEC's online censorship requests were more politically biased than those of other agencies, and they apparently tried to dismiss many accounts and tweets as Russian disinformation. One tweet says the GEC flagged accounts as Russian personas and proxies based on criteria like describing the coronavirus as an engineered bioweapon. Another tweet says the GEC still led directly to news stories like the AFP's headline, Russia Link's disinformation campaign led to coronavirus alarm, U.S. says and a political story about how Russian, Chinese, Iranian disinformation narratives echo one another. NTD reached out to the Department of State for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. President Biden gave his second State of the Union address last night. He focused on his vision for the economy, infrastructure, and support for Ukraine. The president urged members of Congress to unite and work with him on his path forward. While Biden drew rounds of applause from the room, the night also had its fair share of hecklers. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Biden's speech. Finish the job. That was one of President Biden's key messages from Tuesday's State of the Union address. We've been sent here to finish the job, in my view. He used the phrase at least 13 times during his 73-minute speech. Biden called for bipartisanship, saying conflict for the sake of conflict gets us nowhere. We have to be the nation we've always been at our best, optimistic, hopeful, forward-looking. A nation that embraces light over dark, hope over fear, unity over duty, stability over chaos. We have to see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. The president touted low unemployment rates and job creation. He also addressed the growing threat from China. Make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Biden claimed the U.S. is in the strongest position it's been in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world. He says the choices made over the last several years have formed a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America, and that his economic plan is to invest in places and people that feel invisible and left behind during the economic upheaval of the past four decades. We're building an economy where no one's left behind. Jobs are coming back. Pride is coming back. But some Republicans disagreed with statements the president was making and let him know vocally. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. 
You got it. Displeasure could be seen on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's face as Biden suggested Republicans want to take the economy hostage unless he agrees to their economic plans. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Biden took the response as a show of unanimity. So folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be started. All right. He got a standing ovation from the room on that point. So tonight, let's all agree, and apparently we are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Biden finished the night by saying he's never been more optimistic about the future of America and declared that the State of the Union is strong. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave the Republican response to Biden's State of the Union. The Arkansas governor said she didn't believe much of anything President Biden said in his speech. House representatives also took issue with many of the statements Biden made. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the GOP response. Sanders said Biden and the Democrats have failed the American people on issues of inflation, violent crime, the border crisis, and the threat from China. President Biden inherited the fastest economic recovery on record. The most secure border in history, cheap, abundant, homegrown energy, fast rising wages, a rebuilt military, and a world that was stable and at peace. But over the last two years, Democrats destroyed it all. Arkansas's new governor drew a stark contrast between herself and the president and the policies of Democrats and Republicans. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. But you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. House representatives weighed in on Biden's address. Congresswoman Kat Kamak felt like there were two State of the Unions, where the president couldn't decide if he wanted to try and send a message of unity or attack Republicans. In some of the most dire times that we've seen in the regulatory state that is really forcing uh, American families to make tough decisions, historic 40-year uh, highs for inflation, on top of all the other challenges that we have going on, he seems still content on a highly partisan agenda that is more about political wins than getting things done for the American people. Kamak says Biden omitted important issues from his agenda. He conveniently forgot about Chinese spy balloons uh, that dominated the news cycle for the last week and of course left out uh, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Congressman Gary Palmer also spoke with NTD. He felt the speech was divisive and inaccurate. I think the president, again, misrepresented where we are in this country, uh, particularly for a lot of people that are really having a hard time making ends meet. He says Biden's analysis of the economy was misleading. He's talking about that gas prices are lower uh, now than they were from their high point, but they're still a good bit higher 
over a dollar a gallon higher than they were when he took office. Palmer also disagreed with the assessment of the unemployment rate. We literally are borrowing money, mortgaging the future, our own future, our kids' future, our grandkids' future, to pay people not to work. They're not counted. We have one of the lowest labor participation rates that we've seen in decades. So when he tells you that the unemployment rate is low, it's because so many people are no longer looking for work and they're not even counted. Biden's second State of the Union address was his first with a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now we hear a viewpoint on President Biden's State of the Union address. We delve into how the president has addressed challenges to the country's immigration system and strengthened U.S. military ties with the Philippines. Joining us now for some analysis is Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney Robert Patillo. Robert also ran as a Democrat for U.S. Congress in Georgia. Thank you for your time today, Robert. Thank you. According to a recent survey by the Washington Post and ABC News, 62 percent, about two-thirds of Americans, say President Biden has not accomplished very much or has only accomplished very little. Did Biden's State of the Union address address this public opinion? And what would he need to do to turn it around? I think that it did. I think in large part, Biden from the beginning has been failed by a very uh, subpar communications team. I don't think anybody has looked at the work of Katrina Jean-Pierre uh, or Jen Psaki beforehand. I think they've done a, a banner job of articulating the administration's message. Uh, also, the administration uh, has not had the type of spokespeople, for example, that the Trump uh, uh, administration had when it came to going out and talking to the press on a daily basis. What Joe Biden did yesterday, take things into his own hands, uh, hands and articulate to the American people exactly what he's accomplished in two years. It's good to see that from the comms perspective here. Now, President Biden barely mentioned immigration in his address. Do you, in your view, has the president made any improvements in this area since his last address to Congress? I think that he, I think that he has, but I think President Biden, when he did speak of immigration, talked to the need of having congressional legislation. Uh, and let's just uh, uh, keep it 100 on our immigration policy. We've had the same immigration compromise on the table in different forms since 2013. Uh, you had uh, in 2013, Ted Cruz called it amnesty. 2015, you had the Schumer compromise that Republicans walked away from. The exact same legislation was presented to President Trump in 2018, uh, and they walked away from it. President Biden has the exact same legislation now, so he is calling on Congress to finally actually pass things instead of turning into a political football. That will actually solve the problem at the border. And President Biden has made it clear that they've united over uh, 6,000 families at the border. He's met with the leaders of Mexico and the other nations uh, within the Hezbollah sphere of influence to the United States of America to try to craft a deal, but nothing can get done without Congress. And Congress loves a fight more than a policy. Talking about some of these domestic affairs, and I want to look at foreign affairs here. What is Biden's biggest challenge across the globe right now? I think the biggest challenge across the globe is a unipolar world that's fighting to become a multipolar world. Um, for example, last week when everybody's attention was on the Chinese spy balloon, uh, it overshadowed the news that uh, Secretary of State Blinken had made an agreement with the Philippines to expand U.S. Uh, the footprint of U.S. forces in the Southeast Pacific. Um, this now gives the United States bases um, that completely surrounds China and prevents their ability to enter deep waters off the coast. This significantly impacts trade right now because the U.S. forces that are uh, stationed in the re uh, Diego Garcia, uh, we control the Straits of Malacca, we control the Straits of Singapore, we control the Straits of Taiwan. We have military forces completely boxing China in, and instead of focusing on that massive military strength that is stopping China from expanding southward, um, the U.S. press concentrated on a balloon.
Yeah, security in the Pacific is very important. I want to talk about Biden's efforts to unite the partisan divide in Washington. Do you think he's able to do this? I, I think what you saw last night was bipartisan, or was uh, President Biden uh, showing off his 50 years in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's almost like when you take your granddad out in the backyard to play basketball and you figure, oh, he's an old man, he can't do anything, and he beats the hell out of you. We saw that in real time on the uh, on the House floor when he got Republicans to take one of the strongest tools in their basket, the idea of entitlement reform, and take it completely off the table um, because he was able to or, or, or appeal to the American people people uh, about the needs to balance the budget, but not on the backs of our seniors. President Biden is trying to appeal to the Republicans in the center that he knows, if I can get five to 10 of you on board in the Senate and five to 10 of you on board in the House, we can really pass big legislation. And I think that's why we saw so, so much of a bipartisan push from Biden, not demonizing the other side, uh, not throwing out the red meat that many progressives and liberals wanted him to throw out, but really giving that middle of the road, uh, kind of Norman Rockwell-esque picture of America and pushing that agenda for the American people. I see what you mean, working to win over some of these more center-right lawmakers. Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney Robert Patillo, it is great to have your analysis. Thanks, anytime. Four U.S. Supreme Court justices were absent from President Biden's State of the Union address. Those who chose not to attend were not only conservative justices. Justices Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Sonia Sotomayor, and Neil Gorsuch were not present for the speech. Biden greeted the five justices that did attend and spent a little extra time with the newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She is the only justice Biden nominated to the high court. The other justices in attendance include President Trump's nominees, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, along with President Obama nominee, Elena Kagan, and George W. Bush nominee, Chief Justice John Roberts. Of the absent judges were one Trump nominee, one Obama nominee, a George W. Bush nominee, and a George H.W. Bush nominee. Texas filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration on Tuesday. It wants to block federal health guidance. The guidance allegedly forces pharmacies to dispense abortion-inducing drugs. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. The health department released the guidance in July 2022. It requires pharmacies to supply women with abortion-inducing drugs or risk losing Medicaid and Medicare funds. It says the government is responsible for protecting the rights of women and pregnant people in their ability to access care that is free from discrimination. The health department guidance says that includes their ability to access what it calls reproductive health care. The guidance relates to roughly 60,000 U.S. retail pharmacies. It claims that federal anti-discrimination law requires pharmacies to provide these drugs, even if state laws prohibit the procedure. Texas argues that the Department of Health and Human Services has attempted to impose a federal right to abortion. The lawsuit says, but whether the Biden administration likes it or not, the question of abortion is up to the people's elected representatives, not unelected bureaucrats. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton argues that anti-discrimination protections don't require companies to provide abortions. He says, conversely, they protect any person or entity from being forced to aid in the providing of abortions. Paxton further says that the Supreme Court returned the power to decide on abortion law back to the states when overturning Roe v. Wade. He adds that the so-called pharmacy mandate runs counter to certain state laws. Those state laws prohibit pharmacies from providing abortion-inducing drugs. Paxton says, quote, the Biden administration knows it has no legal authority to institute this radical abortion agenda, so it is trying to intimidate every pharmacy in America by threatening to withhold federal funds. 
The attorney general adds that Texas has passed laws to protect the unborn and it won't back down. The Biden administration noted that its guidance was part of its efforts to protect abortion access rights. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, an intruder is caught breaking into Joint Base Andrews, where the presidential Air Force One jet is housed, along with other government aircraft. And California is giving discounts on power bills earlier than usual this year. It comes from the state's climate credit system. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. A former New York stockbroker turned into a sniper for the Islamic State group. The DOJ has found the U.S. citizen guilty of supporting terrorism. The defendant converted to Islam around 2009. He left Brooklyn for Syria in 2013. Prosecutors say he fought in numerous battles for IS and became an instructor for nearly 100 long-range shooters. IS took over much of Iraq and Syria in 2014 while committing mass killings and other atrocities. The extremists lost their last stand in 2019 when the defendant was later arrested and transferred to the United States. An intruder has breached the base of the presidential Air Force One jet for the second time in two years. Gunfire rang out on the airbase. The incident occurred at around 11.30 a.m. on Monday and was acknowledged by the Joint Base Andrews Twitter account later that day. The intruder was apprehended in the base's housing area. Officials said that a base resident discharged a firearm and law enforcement is investigating. No injuries or property damage were reported. In addition to Air Force One, Joint Base Andrews houses the Presidential Marine One helicopter and the Doomsday 747 aircraft intended as the nation's airborne nuclear command and control centers. The base was previously breached in February 2021 when a man got through the military checkpoint entrance and boarded an aircraft. A cold case murder in Indiana has been solved nearly five decades later thanks to advances in DNA evidence examination. Indiana State Police have arrested two men for the 1975 murder of 17-year-old Laurel Jean Mitchell. She was reported missing when she didn't return home from working at a church camp. The next day, authorities found Mitchell's body in water about 17 miles away. Her death was listed as drowning, but the autopsy report showed she fought for her life. Over the years, multiple people came forward saying Fred Brandy Jr. and John Wayne Lehman admitted to killing Mitchell, but nothing concrete linked them to the crime. Until recently, when their DNA was submitted to the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division and came back as a match to DNA found on Mitchell's clothing. Both men, now 67 years old, have been charged with murder and are currently being held without bond. Two railroad unions representing engineers and mechanical workers reached a deal for paid sick time with CSX Railroad Tuesday. It means 5,000 union members employed by CSX will now get four days of paid sick leave each year at full pay. The agreement also allows members to use up to three personal days for sick leave, with the option to contribute the unused sick time to their 401k retirement funds or get paid out for it. Paid sick time was a sticking point in last year's contract negotiations between 12 rail unions and U.S. freight railroads, which nearly sent tens of thousands of railroad workers on strike. Eight unions voted to accept the tentative agreement with no sick leave, while four voted it down. The unions initially asked for 10 paid sick days, but whittled it down to four. 
After the union said the railroad companies would not accept that offer, Congress stepped in to stop the threat of crippling economic fallout. CSX's decision sets a new precedent for U.S. freight railroad companies. The company says it will continue to pursue agreements with the remaining 10 unions. Many Californians will see their next utility bill decrease by up to $120. The state's Public Utilities Commission voted last week to accelerate the rollout of its annual so-called climate credit. A credit of $90 to $120 will automatically show up on the bills of residential customers. The money comes from a state program that requires power plants, oil and gas facilities, and similar industries to buy permits based on the amount of carbon dioxide they emit. This year's utility bill relief totals $1.3 billion. The commission says customers' credit on their electricity bills represents their share of the payments from the state's program. Typically, these credits are distributed in April, but state utilities officials voted to disperse them sooner this year. Millions of Californians witnessed their gas utility bills skyrocket in the past month. Over 400 products, including sandwiches, salads, snacks, yogurt, and wraps, have been recalled over potential listeria contamination. The products were sold under various brand names. They were sold between January 24th and January 30th of this year. The products also include breakfast muffins, croissants, wraps, and an array of fruits, as well as noodle bowls and a string of other items. A full list can be found on the Food and Drug Administration website. The products were distributed across nine states along the east coast of the U.S. plus Washington, D.C. Listeria is a serious food condition, most commonly found in improperly processed deli meats and unpasteurized milk products. Symptoms include high fever, headache, diarrhea, and nausea. And still to come, new signs challenging China's official COVID-19 death count. Funeral homes say there's a one-month wait for collecting ashes. And what's the situation of the protesters who rebuked Beijing's strict COVID-19 controls? The regime has tracked and detained over 100 of them. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. China has announced a new COVID-19 death toll. And once again, that number is being called into question by facts on the ground. Here's Entity's Tiffany Meyer. New evidence is calling Beijing's latest virus death count into question. China's CDC added more than 3,000 to the country's COVID-19 death toll. That was during the week from January 27th to February 2nd. The figure brings the country's official total to over 82,000. But a survey by the Epoch Times shows that actual death in just one city may far exceed that number. The report cites 15 funeral homes in Shanghai that run at least 80 cremation furnaces, with 33 bodies cremated per furnace per day. There were at least 160,000 local deaths in the 60 days after China's zero COVID-19 policy was lifted. This without counting the unburned bodies piling up at funeral homes. The largest crematorium in Shanghai told NTD that it now takes more than a month before ashes are ready for pickup. You have to wait a month to collect the ashes. It's not possible to do it faster. Previous remains must be dealt with first. Residents in Shanghai say the wait time used to be about an hour. 
Funeral homes work in three shifts, 24 hours a day. That's still too slow. In times of high demand, they may even burn two bodies together, and it still takes a couple of months to return the ashes. By then, customers will wonder if the ashes are even their loved ones. I went to the funeral home and saw the dead piled up in batches. Some say they burn two to three bodies at once. People were told to wait half a month before they can collect the ashes. The problem is, you don't even know whose ashes you'll be collecting. Last year in Beijing, a group of young people joined a vigil to remember those who died in a building fire that sparked under China's lockdown. But after the memorial, one by one, attendees started to vanish. Now human rights groups and universities are condemning Beijing for their disappearances. Here's the story. Beijing has been quietly rounding up people who protested against its COVID-19 rules. International Press Freedom Watchdog Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, revealed that over 100 demonstrators remain in detention in China. The CCP has a tradition of binding its time for revenge and then secretly arresting people, and it does not want others to know about the arrests. One of them is Lee Setchi, a graduate from Goldsmiths University of London. In November, she attended a public vigil for Beijing for the victims of an apartment building fire in Xinjiang. Beijing's zero COVID-19 restrictions had prevented people in the lockdown building from escaping. Reports say Lee is still detained in China and spent her 27th birthday in custody. The University of London called it a suppression of free speech and urged Beijing to immediately release all those detained in relation to the vigil. Another vigil participant, Tao Shirshin, also remains in custody. She recorded this video after her friends and fellow vigil joiners started disappearing one by one. Former journalist Chin Zeyi also got arrested. Her alma mater, the University of Chicago, called for her release. And she was let out on bail last month. It's difficult to estimate the scale of the arrests, as relatives of the detainees refused to speak out for fear of more serious retribution. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, France faces a battle over a controversial pension reform bill. As the government debates it in Parliament, citizens have taken to the streets. And an uptick in deaths in Europe has experts exploring if it's related to mass vaccination campaigns for COVID-19. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Now zooming in on the war in Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is making a rare visit abroad. He's in London today and has met with the UK's Prime Minister. Zelensky met Prime Minister Rishi Sunak outside Downing Street. As Zelensky visited, the UK announced an immediate surge of military deliveries to Ukraine. This is only Zelensky's second trip abroad since the war broke out and nearly a year ago. His first trip abroad was to the United States in December last year. During his visit to 10 Downing Street, the Ukrainian president thanked the UK for its support during the war. For me, great honor to be here in Britain, and thanks Britain for society. First of all, the, for your big support uh, from the first days of full-scale invasion. Thank you so much. We are proud, really, and we have very good relations with Russia and Zelensky's visit comes as Ukraine is urging the West to deliver more weapons to help it drive Russian forces out. 
Western countries have scaled up their pledges of military support since the start of the new year, but so far they've refused to deliver the fighter jets that Ukraine has requested. Sunak is now pledging to expand the training of Ukrainian troops to include fighter jet pilots and Marines. The Ukrainian president will be traveling to Brussels, Belgium on Thursday, where the European Union is holding a summit. European nations are also scaling up their support for Ukraine. Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands announced on Tuesday they will be delivering a large number of battle tanks to Ukraine. We are supporting Ukraine with up to 178 Leopard 1 tanks. This is the predecessor model of the Leopard 2, and a number of them are available. However, they have to be refitted and realigned for combat. That means that, in the end, you don't know exactly how many tanks there will be because some repair work is necessary. German Vice Chancellor and Economy Minister Robert Habeck made the announcement during a visit to Washington, D.C. He expects Ukraine to have a double-digit number of Leopard 1 tanks by March, but he stressed that he's not sure when the last tank would be sent. As the tanks become operational, they will then be delivered step by step. Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands said their tank initiative was open to further partners, and Belgium showed an interest to participate. The announcement came after Germany promised last month to deliver the more modern Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine. NATO allies conducted drills on Tuesday during winter military exercises in Estonia. The winter camp exercises are regular drills conducted by the alliance's multinational battle group. Troops from Estonia, France and the UK were carrying out the exercises. They are part of two weeks of drills set to test NATO forces during harsh winter conditions. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, NATO has bolstered its presence on the eastern flank by adding four multinational battle groups to Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia. It brings the total number of battle groups to eight, which stretch from the Black Sea in the south to the Baltic Sea in the north. Now over to France, where farmers drove hundreds of tractors into Paris to protest bans on pesticide. They say the European Union's restrictions are threatening farm production. An EU court last month overturned a French policy that allowed sugar beet growers to use an insecticide banned by the EU. This has raised concern that beet plantings will further decline and more sugar factories will close. France's main farming union and other groups anticipated 500 tractors and 2,000 farmers from the Paris region. The tractors were bearing banners saying Macron is liquidating agriculture and save your farmer. In France, the government's pension reform plans continue to draw stiff opposition. On the streets, hundreds of thousands came out in protest for the third time, and in Parliament, members of the left and right-wing parties began arm-wrestling with the government over the reform. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has more. Some media outlets said it will be a battle. For the next few weeks, French lawmakers are going to debate the government's controversial pension reform. The parliament's left-wing alliance, determined to block the bill, has proposed no less than 7,000 amendments. This came after the opposition lost the vote on Monday to have the wall bill rejected. The interior minister has accused the left-wing opposition of wanting to bankrupt the country and to promote a society without work and without effort and the right to be lazy. The bill's Article 7, which would raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 years, is the most controversial part of the bill. Hundreds of thousands of French took to the streets on Tuesday, 
the third national day of strikes and protest over the reform. Unions said 400,000 were demonstrating in Paris. This is a big movement, which is important. It means renewed confidence. Each time there are many people demonstrating for the first time. But we also have to pass a milestone. That is to say that even if we strike for 10 days, it won't be enough. But we could win if at some point there is an awareness through all these demonstrations that even more workers go on strike. We are not there yet, but we are getting there. The more the government speaks out, the more French people are on the streets. So I think the demonstrations are working. We can see that about 70% of French people are opposed to this reform, and this number is still growing. A recent poll suggests 60% of French would support a general strike to bring the country to a standstill, as a last resort to block the reform. We have to paralyze the country to make this government give in. It's ready to go all the way, so we have to show them that we are too. From the beginning, they have taken a firm stance. They are not negotiating when it was possible to finance the reform in other ways. More protests are planned for this weekend. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Also in France, official figures point to a rise in excess mortality over the last couple of years. A statistician created a program to compile data sets from different European countries to compare peaks in excess deaths during the same time period. He said he found a link between the increase of mortality and COVID vaccination campaigns. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke to him. France's mortality rate has significantly gone up over the last three years. Recently released figures show peaks in 2020, 2021 and 2022 compared to the previous 30 years. According to National Statistics Bureau, last year's excess mortality was caused by the pandemic and the summer heatwave. The office says that the pandemic resulted in 48,000 excess deaths in 2020 and 43,000 excess deaths the following year, despite what it called the positive effect of vaccination. But attributing all the excess mortality to COVID or the heat wave doesn't hold for some experts. Pierre Chaillot is a statistician who has researched COVID figures since 2020. He created a program to compare official data sets published by European governments. He says he found a link between the increase of mortality and the mass vaccination campaigns. I show in the book that you can do some statistical analysis to see if there's a correlation between the vaccination campaigns and the peaks in mortality. And if you compare the number of times it happened to see if that correlation would be due to chance, you get the conclusion that no, we have a real problem, that it happens far too often to be due to chance. Chaillot says he discovered that in 17 European countries, a high vaccine uptake and mortality peaks match in 40% of the cases, which clearly shows a correlation. While countries have vaccinated their populations at different times, so different countries targeted different age groups at different times, there is a correlation that is too compelling to say, no, it will be due to chance. If we do the analysis, we can see that there is a very significant excess mortality for the 15 to 24-year-olds in Portugal, which we have not seen in the past. 
exactly during the vaccination campaign for this population. It also happened in Poland to the 25 to 49-year-olds. There's also the example of Estonia in the book. I also show Hungary, which is an extremely striking example where it works so well that we were surprised. In France, it also happened for a lot of age groups, especially for the 50 to 59-year-olds. Shayu says the most direct way to accurately estimate if deaths are connected to side effects of the vaccine would be to count the number of vaccinated people who died over a period of time and compare them to the unvaccinated. But he says the French health authorities haven't published these data sets and also refuse to properly investigate this issue. The data is available in a database. The ministry's two-faced response is that we don't know how to do it. We don't have it but anyone can do it, which is a paradox. In reality, it's completely ridiculous. And then it's not that complex to do. The statisticians at the Ministry of Health, they do much more complicated things all the time. In order to stick to the official narrative, the authorities have produced the figures that are not accurate. Shayu says he and experts from other agencies requested figures on the vaccination status, but the ministry did not reply to this day. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. In the Baltic state of Latvia, a fire broke out at a drone factory owned by an American company. Two people were hospitalized. Around 3 p.m. local time on Tuesday, emergency services were called to the Edge Autonomy factory on the outskirts of Riga, the capital city of Latvia. Firefighters worked for four hours to contain the flames in the production building. Police have opened an investigation into the fire. Edge Autonomy is a company based in California. It produces drones for federal agencies, including the Pentagon, as well as to U.S. allies. And coming up, a new study reveals the substances that were used for mummification. Some came from as far away as Southeast Asia. And in Australia, a treasure hunter has returned a lost family heirloom. It's a sweetheart bracelet that dates back to World War II. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Scientists just moved a step closer to understanding the process of mummification. Some of the materials used in Egypt came from as far away as Southeast Asia. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. A new study in the journal Nature reveals the substances that ancient Egyptians used to preserve bodies. It's based on a rare archeological find an embalming workshop with a trove of pottery more than 2,500 years old. Many jars from the site were still inscribed with instructions. Usually the inscriptions are on the so-called model clay beakers, which really look like beakers. And uh, they're really, really tiny, actually. It's like this, perhaps. You can really handle them very easily. The study's author, Ramadan Hussein, uncovered the workshop in 2016. He passed away last year. In 2018, he spoke about the discovery's potential to reveal the secrets of mummification. We have measuring cups of oils and substance that were used in the mummification, and they were actually labeled um, with the names of these oils. So we are um, in front of a gold mine of information that has to deal with the chemical compositions of these oils. Researchers compared the writing on the vessels with the chemical traces inside. 
they uncovered new details about the recipes that helped preserve mummies for thousands of years, and the ingredients weren't locally sourced. It's also quite fascinating that we were able to find uh, very exotic sub substances, products coming from the rainforest, most likely from Asia. So I think this is really something to mention about. Mummification is a complex process of protecting the body. Drying it out, removing the organs, and coating it with substances that would slow its decay. We knew that resins do um, <clears throat> disinfect and deodorize to some extent. Um, they can help stop decay if applied properly. The next step for the research will test different parts of actual mummies to see if the same substances show up. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In Australia, a treasure hunter has returned a lost family heirloom to the family of the woman who once wore it. The sweetheart bracelet dates back to World War II. Adrian Dawson is a resident of Georgetown in Tasmania, Australia. His doctor told him to take it easy and find a hobby. So Dawson got a metal detector and started scanning the grounds of his house. He found many small treasures, some dating back hundreds of years. Got some old coins, 1826 coins, taken from Hobart Town, 1855. Dawson's most treasured find so far is a sweetheart bracelet dating back to World War II. At the time, soldiers would mail them back to loved ones at home. And it wasn't until I cleaned the bracelet up, I realised there was words on it, and the words had some meaning to the place where we live, so, or the people who lived here before us. Once he found the bracelet, it was clear to Dawson that he needed to return it to its rightful owners. They were very grateful when Dawson contacted them. Says to my um, dearest wife, Mavis, from your loving husband, Charlie. Well, that's strange because mum and dad never ever mentioned it, and maybe because mum had lost it and she didn't want to bring up that she'd lost a bracelet. Giel believes his mother, Mavis, lost the bracelet in the 1940s while gardening. It is now in a safe location for the family's future generations to cherish. Dawson has only been using his metal detector for a few months and is curious to see what else he can find. Scientists say Jupiter has some new bragging rights in our solar system. Besides being the largest planet, it also has the most moons. Astronomers recently discovered 12 more moons orbiting Jupiter. That brings the total of confirmed moons to 92. Astronomers used a high-powered telescope in Hawaii to discover the moons about 20 months ago. A second telescope in Chile captured similar images last August, and follow-up observations confirmed the new discovery. Saturn has the second most moons in the solar system with 83, Uranus has 27, and Neptune has 14. The James Webb Space Telescope observed its smallest cosmic object to date, an asteroid about the size of the Colosseum in Rome. The asteroid was detected accidentally when the Webb research team focused the telescope on another asteroid. It's between 300 and 600 feet long and located in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The asteroid may be one of the smallest ever found in the main belt. Astronomers will continue to observe to learn more about the asteroid and confirm that it is truly a newly discovered object. TripAdvisor ranks the best food destinations for 2023. Find out which country had two cities in the top five and what tourists say. The details to come on NTD News Today.
Rome has been named the best food destination of 2023. The Italian capital offers a vibrant food scene for both tourists and locals. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the city's cuisine. TripAdvisor has named Rome as the world's best food destination for 2023. Two other Italian cities, Florence and Naples, were ranked fourth and eighth respectively. Rounding out the top five, cities in Greece, Vietnam and France. Tourists in Rome speak highly of the food selection. Something that we take for granted is um, the diverse selection that you get within a menu, right? If you want seafood, if you want meat, if you want to go solely uh, vegetarian, you want to go fully pasta, um, pizza, you, you got it also. This is certainly the best experience I've had compared to Americanized Italian food like Olive Garden or, or somewhere like that. Um, I would say um, some of the best food I've had throughout Europe uh, has been here thus far. Eleonora Casella is a gastronomy writer at the La Repubblica daily newspaper. She says the food scene is diverse and caters to all types of people and budgets. Rome is living a time of great dynamism, and there is more and more quality at all levels, for all tastes, that either a tourist or a food enthusiast can be looking for, from a diner to a wine bar to a cocktail bar and up to the top-end restaurant. According to TripAdvisor, there were two factors behind Rome's top ranking. The number one was the presence of a lot of restaurants that do local cuisine which is always very appreciated by locals and travelers alike. And the second element is also the plethora of different type of restaurants that you can find in Rome. TripAdvisor says it moderates and checks reviews, but some wonder if online reviews should be trusted. Giuseppe Ansuini is the owner of a grocery shop right in front of the 2,000-year-old Pantheon. He sells high-end ricotta, parmesan, and gourmet salami. Everybody can judge everything in a really quick way, even without having really tasted the products. Because, for example, it's easy for a client to come in, see the price and taste it, but they cannot afford to bring it home, so they can't review that product because they didn't cook pasta with that ingredient, didn't do anything with it. According to the Italian Restaurants Association, the industry raked in nearly $40 billion in 2021. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Treat yourself to an extra slice of one of America's favorite foods. Thursday is National Pizza Day, which is observed every year on February 9th. It's a chance to appreciate the history of that cheesy, melty dish so many of us love. The nation's first pizzeria is believed to be Lombardi's in New York, established in 1905. Antica Pizzeria Portalba in Naples, Italy, is thought to be the world's first pizzeria, established in 1738. According to nationaldaycalendar.com, the most popular type of pizza is pepperoni. In Michigan, a veteran police dog has run into some trouble after being accused of stealing a human officer's lunch. A full investigation is now underway. A mugshot of the canine suspect has gone viral after the Wyandotte Police Department shared the alleged incident on social media. Detective Ice has been on the force for more than 10 years. During his time of service, the furry officer has helped dozens of law enforcement agencies with drug searches, suspect tracking, and more. Although Ice is now half-retired, he remains an active member of the department. He has always been obedient, at least up until the alleged lunch theft incident. Good health is a gift that many of us take for granted, that is, until it's lost. But how exactly would you describe good health? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
Many doctors would say that being healthy is the absence of disease. But what if you can't sleep at night or perhaps you find it challenging to do a stretch or a sit up? In Chinese medicine, health is about much more than not being sick. To an acupuncturist, some symptoms are a sign that something in your body is out of balance. Examples include retaining water, constantly feeling cold and having a bitter taste in your mouth. Let's look at some elements of good health according to Chinese medicine. Being free of pain. There are many people who are healthy but struggle with pain. This could include chronic headaches, aches that change with the weather and pain that has lingered from old injuries. Along with the absence of disease, the absence of pain also defines good health. Let's look at the importance of sleep. Your body heals, recharges and rejuvenates during sleep. So your ability to fall and stay asleep is crucial. Beyond sleep, psychological downtime is important. If you are stressed by school, work or family, you may need a break. This will help you to avoid exhaustion and emotional burnout. Let's look deeper at emotions. Emotional wellness includes a life that has meaning. It also includes joy, gratitude, resilience, an open heart and loving relationships. Perhaps the most important is to see the good in others. This will allow you to cultivate compassion. Good emotional health will allow you to deal with the hard times. Let's look at movement. This may mean physical movement in the form of exercise or stretching, but movement also encompasses much more. In Chinese medicine, good health is all about flow. The flow of blood through your vessels, food through your digestive tract and the smooth flow of emotions. Good health through flow also relates to external factors. Examples include your ability to change, try something new and demonstrate flexibility. And finally, let's look at appropriate use of medications. There are many health conditions that are managed with medications. In some instances, one drug is prescribed to offset the side effects of another. Patients are routinely prescribed medications indefinitely with no alternative or end in sight. Taking medications is not inherently unhealthy, but overuse of medications can be. It's rare for a person to never get sick or have health issues. Strengthening our well-being on all fronts is key mentally, emotionally, physically and spiritually. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.